You're listening to the Small Moves Podcast. Small steps for big progress. With your host, Jason Hertzberger. Your next step starts now. Hey, everybody. This is episode nine of the Small Moves Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Hertzberger. Today, I'm bringing you one of the most amazing conversations that I have ever had in my life. I interviewed George Bryant. George is the founder of a website and a business known as the Civilized Caveman, one of the leading websites and sources of information for people that follow the paleo diet and the paleo lifestyle. George is one hell of an interesting guy. He's got a heck of a story coming up and joining the Marine Corps when he was 17, maybe with, maybe without the assistance of a forged signature, possibly. But we're not going to talk about that. George joined the military and he joined the Marines and he almost lost his legs in Somalia, came home in 2012 from the military, and at that point in his life had never once even picked up a frying pan. And two years later in 2014, after finding out some information about the paleo diet just a couple of years prior, George was a New York Times bestselling author. This was one heck of a ride. Um, Ever since then, he's also built up the Civilized Caveman to be one of the leading sources of information that are out there for that lifestyle. He has going on 300,000 followers on Facebook that he broadcasts to on on a near daily basis, sharing information about that particular lifestyle. It was really amazing. George did not come back from his time in the service completely unscathed. We go into some of the details about that. I could sit here and go through this introduction for probably a half hour. It was one of the most exciting conversations that I ever had in my life. It was wonderful. I really hope that you guys enjoy it. I don't want you all to get too much out of the intro and not listen to the show because the show is really incredible. Sorry for all the hype, but I had a blast with this one. I hope you guys do too. And I will talk to you guys on the flip side. Here we go. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire, and you're listening to the Small Moves Podcast, small steps for big progress. Let's prepare to ignite. Hey, George, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man. Before we get started, we're going to get into a lot of stuff that you're involved with and a lot of things that you've really been able to accomplish in your life, both professionally and personally. But first and foremost, you were a Marine serving in Somalia. Is that correct? Yes, I was. I was an active duty Marine for 12 years. Before we get into anything else, it's a heck of a lot less trivial than that. I want to say thank you very much for your service. Of course. Thank you. I appreciate it. When I first came across your site, The Civilized Caveman, I was reading the about section on there and I saw that you were born premature. It kind of talked a little bit about your journey. I'm kind of curious. You started out at three pounds, 12 ounces. You made your way all the way up to 254 pounds and now back down to about 165. That's a hell of a roller coaster. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I sure can. I sure can. That is quite a roller coaster. And uh, it feels like such as well. It, it, it's almost like a measurable at this point, but it's great to look back on because at the time you're like, you don't even realize like 
what's happening. There's almost like a little bit of you're totally enrolled with it. So you don't see the bigger picture and it's, it struggles. But now when I look back on it, probably the best, best thing that ever happened to me was all of this journey. So I was five weeks premature. With that being said, even as a kid, I had no trouble gaining weight because I ended up being a super fat kid. I was just chubby. Like there's pictures of me eating like Hawaiian rolls in bed at like three years old. That's and, awesome. um, <laughs> It was, it was one of those things that like there was no healthy food system in my house whatsoever. I actually, to this day, I can't remember one time that I ever had family dinner with my family all together at one table. So it was fast food, not eating. You know, there was a lot of drug abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse in my home, alcohol, things like that. And so I've pretty much fended for my own most of the time. And then in high school, middle school, like I was picked on, I was bullied, you know, all three of my, my front teeth were knocked out three times. Like it was... It was not like looking back like the most glorious childhood that I could ever have. And and honestly, I wouldn't change it for the world because I have such perspective now. You learn. Um, yeah. But once I hit my teenage years, that's when things got really out of control, you know, with all the stress of home and school and bullying and everything else. I actually became bulimic at 15. And so that started there. And then at 17, I decided I needed to get out of here. So I forged my parents' signature and I joined the Marine Corps, but they wouldn't let me join right away. I had to lose like 45 pounds to go to boot camp. So oh, wow. okay. I, um, I had a recruiter that wasn't the healthiest person ever, i.e. put me in a sauna, starved me, but he got me down to weight and I went, I went to the Marine Corps. And so when I got to boot camp, I think I was like 185 at eight. I was, I was about to ask, what was your, what was your weight when, you, where they said you had to lose 40 pounds? I was around like 205 to 210, I believe. Um, and so I ended up getting to boot camp around like 180 ish around there. And, um, three months at Paris Island, I graduated boot camp like 151. I looked like Skeletor, like my wow. was collapsed. Like you could see the <laughs> jawbone structure. The oh. pictures are insane. And then uh, I got so skinny and so down to it um, that bulimia wasn't really a thing for me at the time. And so I just kept working out. The Marine Corps is obviously huge about fitness, right? We have to be physically fit. So I was basically paid to work out all the time. And then I deployed to Somalia in 2004. And I had the worst case of Napoleon complex you could ever imagine. And so I said, listen, I'm going to be here for 13 months. I'm going to get as big as humanly possible. Like that's all I'm going to do. I'm going to eat 10,000 calories a day. I'm going to lift the weights. I'm going to take all the supplements. Uh, and I did, I ended up getting around like 215 pounds, but the difference was, is this was, it wasn't fat. Like I had a 28 inch waist and I was jacked like six pack, like everything was there. And then on my 21st birthday, um, while I was in Somalia, I got exercise induced compartment syndrome and I almost lost both my legs. And so at the end of that deployment, I came home, I ended up having six surgeries and I spent 12 months in a wheelchair, which is when I ballooned up to my heaviest because when I was in a wheelchair, um, I was addicted to the pain pills they were giving me eating pizzas alone in a bedroom and then purging it all up. And so I ended up right around 254, 255 at my heaviest. And that was in 2005. And, um, the Marine Corps was like my safety net. I'd only been in for like three years at that time. And I didn't know where to go back to. And they're like, we're going to medically separate you. Like you're not fit for duty. You're overweight. And I was scared crapless. And you so, had nowhere to go. Sure. I, I literally had nowhere to go. And I was like, I can't. And so I was like, I'm going to do this. Like I'm going to make this work. They told me I'd never walk again. I'd never be able to feel my legs, which is still true. I can't feel my legs, but 
I was able to walk. I ended up running again. I ended up tying a world record for a standing box jump. I started doing triathlons. I did a half Ironman and I ended up getting down to a, a fighting weight of like 165 to 175. And I maintained that throughout the rest of my career. And then in 2010, I was in Afghanistan and I ended up having one too many, which was more like four too many concussions in the course of a year. And so in 2013, um, they medically separated me after 12 years for traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress disorder, and then my legs, which was exercising induced compartment syndrome and, and all this other stuff. And so uh, through that process, I started um, reading a book called The Paleo Solution, I think is what it was called by my buddy Rob Wolf. And uh, I discovered paleo. And, and in this time, like my bulimia was up and down and kind of all over the place. And I was like, this paleo thing sounds really easy. Like I can just eat meat and vegetables. I don't have to measure anything. I don't have to obsess about anything. I'm just going to do this. The only problem is that I had never cooked before ever. And so, really, no, okay. nothing like nothing. So I was like, when I get home from Afghanistan, I'm going to teach myself how to cook on YouTube and I'm going to document it on social media so I can like have accountability. And so that's where my Facebook page started. I started posting recipes I was making for other people, um, from other recipes. And then I started a blog and then fast forward two years and I'm a New York times bestselling cookbook author. Um, and I taught myself the photography, the web design, the cooking and everything. And so it was quite a journey. And it still continues to this day because I still run our website, Civilized Caveman, which is getting a facelift right now. Uh, we're incorporating other than recipes. We're adding some wellness and fitness stuff so we can support holistically like the whole body, like the whole journey, not just food. Nice. Okay. And, um, and then now I do marketing consulting for companies like Onnit, Reebok, Men's Health, uh, Vital Proteins, and uh, some big, big, big companies. So the journey is just this this constant evolution of like getting smacked in the face a couple times, picking myself back up and always making sure I stand up one more time than I get knocked down. Nice. And that's kind of, that's kind of what got me here. So now I'm uh, actually, you know, I don't, I haven't talked about this in any interview, but now um, I'm actually having some issues with uh, dental work that was done in the military because they gave me mercury fillings in my mouth and oh my God. Um, I'm having like, I have super high metal levels in my body and I'm having to find a biological dentist and get them removed, but they've been affecting my thyroid. So like I've been gaining weight uncontrollably again and I'm like 205, 210 and um, we couldn't figure out what it was. I was eating the same, I was working out the same and I was still gaining weight. And it comes to find out that uh, metal in your teeth really affect your body. And so now we're going through the whole detox process. I'll get those removed. I'll lose the weight again and we'll all be good. Oh my gosh. Okay. Wow. I, th th yeah, there's a lot there. I mean, t um, so you, you never, basically you never picked up a frying pan until what was it? 2012? 2000 and yeah. 2012. Yeah. 2012. Jeez. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because yeah, like I, I like the point that you brought up about, you know, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't change any of it for the world at this point. Like it's, it sounds, it sounds kind of bad to say, but when, when you say like when you got out of the military and you got into the paleo cooking and you started, you learned the website, you learned the writing, you learned cooking, you learned all this different stuff. You, on the surface, you could almost say it's like, well, it's, it's not like you had anything else better to do, but well, in your case, you kind of didn't have anything else to do. So why not, like, why not, why not really bury your head into something like this? And this is great. Like what, what was it? I mean, there's a lot of different ways to eat healthy that, you know, affect different people's bodies, different ways. Like what was it about paleo specifically that really drew you to it? And, 
as a caveat to that, tell me, like, for people that aren't familiar other than just hearing the term kicked around, what is paleo specifically? Yeah, and for sure. Why? What, what was it about that that sort of drew your eye so much versus, I don't know, like all the different types of systems that are out there? Yeah, no, great question. Great question. And so uh, I'll answer the what is paleo first. So for me, uh, what paleo means is eating as close to the source as possible with like whole foods and eliminating gluten because I have celiac disease. And so for me, that's like a couple servings of vegetables, whole meats, the highest quality grass fed, raised by farmers, like eliminating poison that gets added to our food. And so one of the things I don't believe in is I don't believe in dogmacy. I believe that paleo nor mincing words. So I'm, so I'm hearing that's great. <laughs> yeah. So like, I, I believe that paleo is a segue to like kind of reset your body and figure out your recipe for yourself. Right. No, nobody is the same. Everybody's DNA is unique. Everybody's fingerprint is different. Sure. And I think that regardless of whether you're doing paleo or whole 30 or primal or anything in like the ancestral nutrition space, the most important thing is really to just become aware of the quality of food that we're putting in our body and then the quantity sometimes so we can make better decisions that really do increase the longevity of our life. And so what really attracted me to paleo is that I was bulimic. So I obsessed about food, right? Like I binge ate, I obsessed about everything and without paleo, it was really easy to binge eat pizzas and flowers and cupcakes and all these things. Of course, sure. And so I was attracted to paleo just out of the pure simplicity of it and that there was no gluten, which was something I needed. And then I literally could be like, I'm going to eat meat and vegetables and I'm going to feel better. And I literally feel like paleo was one of the, the catalysts that allowed me to overcome my bulimia with no therapy because... As I started eating paleo and I started training myself, I was creating micro habits that literally kept being reinforced with positive feelings. My body felt better. I slept better. I had less symptoms and side effects from all my injuries. I was losing weight. Like everything was like the perfect recipe to be like, I need to keep doing this. And so I did and, and I kept going. And, and now I've over the years, like I've been eating paleo for uh, eight years now. Mm -hmm. And I've been around the space since it's since almost the very beginning. And now it's, it's almost like, um, I just call it like a paleo template, right? I eat paleo, but I eat more of gluten-free. Like I add some gluten-free bagels or breads to get carbs. I have white rice and white potatoes and things that people used to think were quote unquote bad mm -hmm. that were just, um, a good thing to cut out in the beginning to allow my body to reset and then literally figure out what works for me. Because I know people uh, that eat standard American diets that are happy, they feel good, they're healthy. And for me, how you feel mentally around food is more important than what you're putting in your mouth because our body operates in either a sympathetic or parasympathetic state, which is fight or flight or rest and digest. And in order for your food to work, you have to be in a rest and digest state no matter what. And so if you're stressed about it, if you're obsessive about it, it doesn't matter if you're eating tacos or Oreos, it's not going to support your body. So first, for me, always comes mindset, right? Because mindset keeps people grounded. It keeps you connected to your why and what your strengths are. And most importantly, 
it doesn't put a negative stigma around food to cause things like bulimia, anorexia, orthorexia, or any other like the eating disorders and body shaming that exists in this planet. Sure, sure. Now, I, I, I like your I like your perspective on paleo as being almost sort of like a reset button. It sounds like it's almost like a reset button for people's digestive system. Um, whereas like whether, whether that be something that you end up sticking with long term and then experimenting or shifting to whatever the other options are that are out there that might be better for you. Um, I, that's, that's a neat perspective. I like that. Tell me one th- you mentioned that you had celiac disease. Yep. When, when did you find that out? I, I'm not celiac, but I have the next stage up, which is the non-specified, like, what is it? Like non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So yeah, I, basically I, like you're gluten intolerant. Yeah, exactly. Like it will, it will make me and everyone around me very unhappy if I come across gluten, but it's not going to kill me. It could, For sure. you know, it could to you. So like, what, when did you find that out? For sure. Yeah. I had struggled with a lot of like food sensitivities. Like I thought I was allergic to everything, including dust, dirt, dogs, wheat, pollen, like everything. When I had my allergy tests, like everything triggered, like the rasp test where they put all the needles in your back, yep, the needles. Yep. Exactly. Everything triggered like all of them. And I was oh like, what do I mean? I live in a bubble. Like <laughs> what the hell is this? And then, um, I stumbled upon, uh, so Tim Ferriss is a friend of mine and he wrote the four hour body. Yep, I'm a fan and in that book, he basically promoted like a paleo diet with the inclusion of beans. Yep. But I never liked beans. Okay. And so I tried the four hour body and within like two weeks, all my allergies like went away. Like my symptoms went away, my gut distress, like all the other things, not to mention, um, my sensitivities went away like in a matter of weeks. And I was like, what the hell is this? Like, what is going on? And I started digging into some research and then I found out, um, about celiac disease and what it does, killing the lining of your small intestine in your cilia and all that other stuff. And I went and got tested mm-hmm. and sure enough, like I was pretty gluten sensitive, but they said at the time, the only way to really know is to do an elimination diet. Mm-hmm. And I did an elimination diet and I removed everything that was gluten or had to do with gluten and it made a massive difference. And so I stuck with it and that's how I found out. And, and what was really crazy, um, what was really crazy is that when I did that, I figured out that I wasn't actually allergic to everything else. It's that my body was so inflamed and fighting the one thing that triggered me that everything else set me off. It's amazing. It's amazing when you start messing with the domino theory of this stuff, how it like it can all go back to just one thing or one of a couple of little things that just inflame everything and just causes everything else. Like, you know, one, one, one thing that's for, for you and for me, that was gluten. That was wheat. Um, for a lot of people that's sugar and, you know, people that might not necessarily, there's no such thing really as a insensitivity to sugar or an allergy to sugar. Uh, I mean, I'm sure it exists, but it's amazing. The inflammatory properties of the sugar in your body and how many other little problems that that causes. Like it's, it's amazing how that can get like clearing those things out of your system. It's amazing. The domino effect that you start to see in so many areas. Like, yeah, I, I, I can't even, I can't even tell you, I lost my dad to cancer. And so, um, he had metastatic brain and lung cancer and he ate the, the standardist of standard American diets. And I literally got to see over the course of nine months, what a standard American diet does to somebody with cancer, i.e. how quickly it exacerbates. Oh yeah. It eats them alive too. And like accelerates the cancer, um, mm-hmm. cause sugar is what feeds cancer. So yeah, I, this is, this is such a, a rabbit hole and an important conversation, but 
I, um, I think that no matter what, it, it's really like for me, the thing that I try to teach people, because I come from a different perspective, like I'm not some personal trainer or some dude with an eight pack telling people how to live. <laughs> like I came from the perspective of being fat and overweight and bulimic and orthorexic and struggling with eating disorders and body image issues. And someone as a man who's covered in tattoos that was sexually abused and physically abused. Like I have quite a different perspective sure. than most people. So I am all about um, belonging with like emotional stability. Like I want people to like realize that they're good enough and their choices aren't wrong. They're just a choice. I want people to be empowered to choose because, you know, cutting things out, eliminating things, going super dogmatic or super strict is never sustainable, mm -hmm. but constantly choosing the empowering decision is, and then not punishing yourself when you make one that might not be ideal, but rather than uh, punishing yourself, you just kind of pivot, you readjust, you recommit and you go after it again, because that is sustainable. And those tiny habits really, really, um, support people. So whatever it is, sugar, wheat, gluten, dairy is another big one that we run into all the time. Yep. Uh, whatever it is, I don't want someone to swing all the way to the other side. I want you to find uh, harmony. And I very intentionally say harmony. I don't like the word balance, uh, because balance implies that if you fall out of it, you crash and burn, right? It's either one side or the other, but if you're out of balance, it's such a negative connotation. Yeah, or or about the other thing that balance makes me think of is that you're not being particularly good at any one thing. It's like what pe people talk about the concept of work-life balance. It's like, okay, I can go half-ass with my job and half-ass with my family, and guess what? I've got balance. I'm like, yeah. well, that's not really what you're going for. Like, that's really not what you're going for. No, yeah. no I, yeah. I, I I like I like harmony as well. That's great. Yeah, so I use music as an example because music is not balance. Music is a ton of like different octave notes, highs and lows and sounds that shouldn't work together, but they all harmoniously come together to create that sound. And so that's what I like to look at it as because rather than trying to balance you're, you're talking about inclusion now, like part of your lifestyle and being harmonious is that your, your health dictates the quality of your relationships, which dictates the quality of like your home life, which dictates the quality of your sleep, which then dictates the quality of your work, which is all fueled by all of those pieces working harmoniously together. And so there's not one important area for me. Mm -hmm. And so the reason I say that is because a lot of people like to segment. They're like, well, I work out so hard at the gym, but sometimes I, I half-ass at work. And I'm like, well, if you have half-ass at work, you half-ass at the gym as well. Yep. And then if you half-ass at the gym, you probably half-ass with your food choices as well. And so rather than run around like trying to create compartments or segment our lives, I tell everybody, just own it. Like be authentic and understand that like you as a person, you're perfect, whole and complete as you are. You are not defined by your choices. You're defined on what you choose next. And that's like one of those things that like do what supports you. Like is the decision I'm about to make, the food I'm about to eat, the workout I'm about to do, is what I'm about to do going to make my life better or change the outcome of my life one day, one month, or one year down the road? And that's like where I kind of like to go. Yeah, no, that's great. And a great analogy to that to that perspective too is meditating. I don't know. Are you you seem relatively high strung? Um, is is meditating something that's that's kind of part of your daily practice, or is that something that you do yourself? Or yeah, or yeah, not? it is. Okay. I have a I have an infrared sauna at my house, and that's like kind of like my zone. And I that's do ice thing. baths as well. I do Got like it. daily ice baths, and so um, one of my favorite things about cold and ice baths in general is that 
when it's that cold, like 33 degrees, and I'm spending five to 37 minutes in it, uh, if you stop focusing on your breathing, you freeze. Freeze, absolutely. <laughs> and so uh, because I am so high strung and I'm really stubborn, I have to physically force myself to meditate, which cold does to me because- mm -hmm. It makes uh, you slow every, down. Yeah. Every time I run down a rabbit hole, I'm like, oh, my breathing. Oh, I have to think about this, right? And it really eliminates all of those distractions. And so that is my form of meditation. Yeah. And that's great because one, one of the one of the great things about meditation for anyone that's been practicing meditating for any length of time, like most people that don't know much about meditating, the first thing that they think of is, okay, I have to sit there and think about nothing for 20 minutes. There's no way I can possibly do that, so I'm not going to even bother trying. That is, as as you learn over time, that's not at all what it's about. It's about being able to be to sit and recognize when a distraction hits, see it, recognize it, not internalize it, and be able to let it go, and then get back to that state of observation. Is it it probably a better, the best way that I can describe it. Very much like what you were trying to talk about earlier, where you know the the. Per a person's perspective, like you don't, you're not seeking perfection. You're not looking for zealots. Like you don't, like if someone falls off the wagon once and has a, has a grilled cheese sandwich, they're not the devil. They're not going to die. They're not going to, but all they need to know is that they can get back on the horse and not to beat themselves up about it. It's a, it's very analogous to meditation where it's a, it's not about the perfection of sitting there thoughtless for an extended period of time. It's Oh, look, I got distracted. Oh, I'm starting to like, I'm starting to feel warm. I guess that must be anger. What thought just crossed my mind that made me feel anger? Okay, let's let that pass and then get back to where we were and just stay on the path. That's exactly what, what you're talking about. At least that's, that's the analogy that, may, that makes the most sense for me because I've been working a lot on my meditation practice over the last six months and I've gotten much, much better at it once I realized that I didn't have to shoot for that perfection and not think about, you know, what's going on on Facebook and when I have to get my oil changed in my car and when, when am I going to finally get to the grocery store? And then holy crap, when I finally time for the grocery store, when am I going to have time to cook the stuff that I'm going to buy? Just blah. You're like, yeah, what, yeah, once I you, love that. like yeah, I, I, I just want to, I want to plus that for you because I love how you described meditation. Mm -hmm. Um, and for me to kind of, I, I won't pontificate because I, I get meditation, but to kind of sum it up, right? Sure. Uh, I think one of the biggest things that I struggled with is that I always tried to do meditation, mm -hmm. right? Like I was trying to check a box and do meditating, right? Do the 20 minutes, do the silence, like do what everybody said <laughs> I could do. Yeah. And I realized that really the entire purpose of meditation is to teach you how to be. And that's what we are. We're human beings, right? But it's to teach you how to be and exist without filling the space with distractions, mm -hmm. And so it can look a, min a million different ways. I used to commute 90 minutes every day when I was in the Marine Corps because I didn't want to live near the base. I wanted separation. And so I would have three hours in the car every day and I would drive in dead silence, 4 a.m. and then sometimes 9 p.m. coming home. And the thoughts and the energy and the emotions and the roller coaster that I experienced doing that was insane. But it was also part of my process. Like it was I training. I constantly trained myself to just be and you know, in this world we live in and distractions and, and I love where this podcast is going by the way, but the world that we live in with distractions is that we're taught to constantly do like you have to do the next thing. You have to check the next box. You have to hit the next goal. Yeah. And 
really we're disconnected from whatever you want to call it, source, your soul, yourself. And I travel a lot. I'm on the road like three and a half weeks out of the month. So I'm talking 12 to 20 flights a month and like, you know, 21 nights in hotels away from my family. And it's hard for me sometimes. And it's probably one of the best thing that's ever happened to me and my soul because I really, really get to focus and appreciate on what's important. And I'm hit with distraction after distraction and emotion after emotion where I'm in an airport, I'm on an airplane, I'm in a hotel, I'm in a meeting with a client that I actually have to like kind of operate in a state of like meditation because I miss my wife. I miss my baby. I miss my daughter. I'm out of my environment. I'm out of my habit. I'm out of my routine. And so I'm constantly uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And it's really been amazing for me to see the growth that's happened to me internally, Mm -hmm. just from being constantly in that state of like being a heat seeking missile for what I fear most, which is leaving comfort. Right. Yeah. Well, we, I mean, we're, we're, we didn't rise above lower primates by figuring out how to just be comfortable, be comfortable. Like the, we, we genetically, we need struggle. Like it's, it's built into our DNA. We need to struggle. Like if for anyone that comes complete, there's a reason the term complacent or complacency has such a negative connotation in conversation. And really, if you think about the textbook definition of it, it really shouldn't have a negative connotation, but it does because it's so far from our nature. Like we, we need to struggle. We can thrive with it as long as you understand that you can adopt it as a friend. Like, and it's interesting how it kind of goes back to meditation, what it does, what it's done, at least for me, the best analogy someone ever told me to it, what that I can apply across the board is if for anybody that's out there, that is, I should caveat happily married (laughs) for anyone that's out there that is happily married, sitting in your living room or out on your deck with your spouse in dead silence for an hour and being thoroughly content in that state. That's only something that can happen between people that are at such a level of comfort with each other that silence is perfectly fine because they know that as long as they have this, everything else sort of falls away. That's what having a meditation practice does for you, for yourself. It puts you at a place where you're comfortable with things as they are. And everything else just sort of falls by the wayside. I like I like how you I like your perspective on how you can use other experiences in your life in, as forms of meditation. Because and that and that's true because not a lot of people a lot of people struggle to find the time. I know you mentioned you mentioned Tim Ferriss earlier. Yeah, one one of the thing I listened to his podcast religiously. Actually, one of the the one the one standardized question that I have for all of my guests at the end of the show, I kind of stole from his show because it's so applicable to the concept of small moves, which we'll get to at the end. But one of the things that he mentioned, he had uh, Russell Simmons, and he asked a question of Russell Simmons, who's an avid meditator, and he asked a question. It's like, you know, have you? It's like what I'm trying to remember the exact term, where he's like. Russell Simmons said, if you don't, if you don't have time to meditate for 30 minutes, then you need to do it for three hours. And I'm like, that just hit me like a truck when I first heard it. And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I guess that's, that's true. Isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an amazing concept and and I'm going to, and I love it. I love your small moves. I love all the stuff that goes with it for me. And, um, 
I think what was so important for me is that like forever the the word meditation always made like this overwhelming feeling in me because I thought I had to do it right. Yep. And that's where um that's where like I've kind of learned to adapt and like my meditation is mine. It's like what supports me and my being and like just really taking the time to sit in a sauna for an hour or take a 30 minute ice bath or go hike up the mountain behind my house in silence. Like that's just forms of, it's really just separating yourself from distractions and whatever way that is. Like I know some people like moms just want to go lock themselves in the closet and lay on the floor. Like that's meditation, right? Like, and that's okay. Like if hundred percent, okay. Yeah, that, if that, if that's your way of escape of escape and that's how you you and your mind choose to cope with things. That's okay. As long as you never, as long as you leave the closet every now and then, you know, it's like, as long as, as long as you don't stay in there for the rest of your life, then it's perfectly okay. Meditation is not avoidance, but it, it it's to connect you to things and, and back to being. So I think, I think that's all great. And, and you know, what's really interesting is that for most of my life, a lot of the stuff I mentioned this in my intro earlier is that I wouldn't change what happened in my life and, and really the reason I say that is because it gives me perspective, right? It, I call them epiphany bridges. Like when you, in marketing, I teach people like marketing is about creating possibilities. And so the more that you can empathize and be compassionate and understand people, um, the, the more connection you can have, the more they can trust you and the more they can take action on their own dreams. And so what I love is that I use my platform and I'm open. Like I talk about bulimia, I talk about the sexual abuse and everybody always asks me like, what's that have to do with food? And I'm like, it has everything to do with food. And I'm like, because how I see myself and how I feel about myself dictates the choices I make, whether conscious or subconscious. And so I always want to be like a beacon of authenticity. And I did in most of my life use the same kind of tactics I use now where like I run towards things that scare me or I'm super open and vulnerable about them or like I get them out of my head as quick as possible, all in this, all in this pursuit of like being this and being content with who I am, like, like you said a minute ago, like there's many people that I couldn't, I used to not be able to sit in silence next to you for an hour. It would make me uncomfortable, like, like cringeworthy, make my skin crawl uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I can think of thousands of examples. And then now, um, I'm on the road. Like I was just in, uh, on it, uh, in Austin and I worked out with Olympic gold medalists, tour de France winners, and it's funny because three years ago, while standing next to them, I would have talked nonstop. <laughs> like, talk about like a projection of insecurity. Like, hey, do you know who I am? Like, let's talk about this. Let's fill the space. Like, blah, 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 blah. Right. And mm -hmm. I thought it was really interesting because I was able to be there and I was giving a keynote to these people. Um, but I spent two days with them and I, I told my wife, I'm like, babe, I'm like, it was so crazy. I kept my mouth shut the whole time. <laughs> And she just started laughing at me and she's like, yeah, it, it means that you're leveling up. Like your, your consciousness, your awareness, your, your kind of everything is leveling up to the point where you're starting to like show up differently because your, your habits and all these things that you've been practicing just continue to push like your evolution. And so, um, the reason I say that is because I think a lot of times I see people look back at their past or even look at their yesterday or a week ago. And they put the filter on it like I'm bad or wrong, or they associate it with like guilt, shame, fault, or blame. Oh, so true. And the, the truth is, is that it just is. Like, that's all it is. It just is. There's no meaning to it. There's no polarity to it. It's not good or bad. It just is. It's like really what you do now. But life is not about the destination. I tell everybody that in my life, like my life happens in the messy details. 
Like that's where I live my life in the mud, dirty, broken, battered, like just with a smile on my face, because that's where the experiences come from. That's where the growth comes from. And so I have find comfort and solace in like being challenged. And it's just a really important distinction because I, I've seen it a lot. And, and I remember po- points in my life where I used to avoid it, right? Like, you know, that uncomfortable conversation you don't want to have, or like going into a room where like, you just want to fill the space with vomit, like vocal yeah. vomit that doesn't uh-huh. serve anybody. And I, there's, I, there's I'm guilty. Yeah, of course. I think we all are right. And here's the truth. I want to, I want to presence this for everybody. Just because I had an amazing experience in Austin doesn't mean that next week when I go to the CEO's office of a $7 billion company that I have planned, that I'm not going to verbally vomit again, (laughs) right? Like I'm committed to being grounded and conscious and aware, but I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what circumstances exist. I might be so insecure that day that I have like verbal diarrhea all over the place and they never talk to me again. Oh, that's so funny. And that's totally okay as well. Yeah. Now it's, it's, um, just a follow up on that point. You, you mentioned when, um, from your, your time in the service that you suffer from PTSD. Yes. You have a service dog. I do. How it, Tell me the story about that, because I you see so many people that I know either that the our only in, encounters with service dogs are police dogs or military dogs or you know there's there's the there's the blind guy in line at the bank that has his golden retriever with him, uh, but when it comes to actually related to PTSD, I've never had the privilege of coming across a soldier with a service dog specifically for that purpose. What, what does he do for you? Like what, what is your, what's your connection? Yeah. So she telling me that story. Yeah, no, I'd love to. It's a, she, her name's Leilani. Um, and here's the truth. I never wanted a dog. My wife and daughter wanted dogs forever. And I was like, no, no, no. Cause really I just didn't want to connect to anything. I was so disconnected. Sure. And, um, we found Leilani cause my wife, I would still go look for her with her, like at rescues and stuff. And Leilani's a pit bull and we were in a rescue and I, I saw her. And she was abused for like four and a half years and um, neglected. She'd been in the rescue for like three and a half months. And she was like the most beautiful dog ever, but she avoided everybody, like everybody. Like she'd walk to the back of the crate. She'd growl. She'd bark. Sounds like somebody you know. Yep. It sounds like me. (laughs) Like it sounds like my twin in dog form. And I walked over to her crate and she walked right up to me and started licking me and laid on my lap. And I sat on the concrete for two hours. And listen, I did not want a dog. I did not want a fucking, I, I did not want a dog like at all. I didn't want one. And my wife is like, no, like we're not going to get the dog right now. And I'm like, yeah, totally. Right. Like, and she's like, why are you sitting with the dog? And I'm like, cause it was so out of context. Like it had no meaning to her whatsoever. And so then we get to the car and we're literally, we get to my car and we open the, open the doors and we both stood there and wouldn't get in the car. And I looked at my wife and I'm like, what are we doing? And she's like, well, we're going home. I'm like, yeah, but neither of us have gotten in the car yet. <laughs> and she's like, we can't leave. And I'm like, why? And she's like, we need that dog. And I was like, yes. And then so we were like, let's foster to adopt her. <laughs> and then we had her home. They brought her to our house. She threw up in the car on the way. She wouldn't come in the house. It took us three hours to get her in the house. Oh, God. She was so abused. And, um, once she got in the house, I think we had her for two minutes before my wife called them and said, we're adopting her. We're not fostering her. <laughs> That's great. And then we, um, we ended up training her. And, and the reason it happened is because I have severe nightmares like every night. So 
Uh, my wife washes the sheets every single day because I wake up drenched from head to toe, no matter what, whether I'm doing ice baths or detoxes or infrared saunas, like the nightmares are insane and I'm okay with them. Like I love them. Like they let me know that I'm alive because I still get to choose to put my feet down on the ground every morning and say, I love my life. Sure. Um, but they're bad when they get spatially, like when I become spatially unaware, like if I wake up and I think I'm in Afghanistan or somewhere else and sometimes my wife can't wake me up. So the first night we had Leilani, she slept next to my bed and she started waking me up before I started having nightmares. So she would like grab my hand or she would nudge my hand or she would like jump on the bed and my wife started noticing and I was like, oh, that's fine. Like she's just needy, like whatever. And then it kept going. And then I stopped having as many nightmares. I was getting woken up throughout the night, but I wasn't having as many nightmares um, because she was basically like she could sense them or intervene. And that's how it all started. And then we started training her and did all that. And then um, she started recognizing like when I had a panic attack coming or like when my blood pressure was boiling because someone was like triggering me or mm-hmm. I was having anxiety and she just basically started becoming a pattern interrupt and we didn't really train her to do it. Like she just did it. She just did it. She sensed it. She just did. Yeah. It. Like we were just connected. And like, for me, like I still didn't want a dog. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> No, like that's another mouth to feed. I got to pick up your poop. I got to take you on walks. Like I want nothing to do with it. And, um, and that's how it all started. And then we ended up having her train and she travels with me. And then now what's really interesting is we have a 10 month old, and she chooses the 10 month old over me and only comes back to me when I need something. When something's wrong. Sure. Yep. And she's just super supportive of the baby and like super nanny dog. And so, uh, it happened by accident. And, and now I have a lot of friends with PTSD that have dogs that do similar things, um, that keep people like at bay, give them space. They can know like, um, anxiety attacks coming, panic attacks coming. They're trained to wake people up from nightmares, things like that. Um, but that's primarily what service dogs for PTSD do. Out of curiosity, you you mentioned about having now, now you have a bunch of friends that have this had a similar experience and also have PTSD dogs. Um, how out of curiosity, yours is a pit bull. How many, a pit bull. how many of the ones that you know of also happen to be pit bulls? I'm asking. Zero. Really? Yeah, zero. Um, I have met two other service members in the airport with pit bulls because I went up and like thanked them for number one advocating for the, for the breed, for the breed. Sure. And, um, and also like just having a conversation because we had the same dogs, like we were just relating. Um, but yeah, a lot, a lot of labs, like a lot of labs, uh, some German shepherds and then some other like mixes and things like that. But, uh, I will say that there's a lot of programs that are starting now where rescues are working with organizations directly okay. um, to train pit bulls and dogs like that to be service dogs because they literally are like some of the most compassionate, connected dogs on the planet. It's insane. I agree. I agree. Is it, is there any particular organization that you know of that does that that I can mention or link to? Or If we- I did, I would tell you. I honestly don't know. I've just kind of like heard through the grapevine okay. um, because like- I will- I will, try and re- I will try yeah. and research that. And if I can find something like that, I will post it on the show notes. I- yeah, I think I, I think there's like 50 organizations that train service dogs for like service members. And some of them like very specifically go after like certain breeds. And so we just still support the rescue where we got um, Leilani because it's just a pit bull rescue. So yeah, so I, I, I mean, anything would be beneficial, right? So it's all good for people. Got it. Got it. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Like the, there's so many ways that we can take this conversation, but what something that just really strikes me about talking with you is it's a, 
you obviously you're incredibly motivated. Obviously you're incredibly driven to get better. That didn't come from anywhere from what from whence you came. Where did that come from? Like what where, can you kind of pinpoint sort of what what was that sort of catalyst that made you start to sort of think that way? Because clearly, clearly it sounds like it didn't come from parents. Clearly it didn't sound like it came from your home. Like it didn't come from the baby like it didn't come from the babysitters. It didn't come from anything. Yep. around there probably didn't if you you probably would have mentioned it already if it had come from school or a teacher or whatever it didn't where did the like where did this come from this shift in you that kind of kind of took you in this direction yeah so uh this is an amazing question i'm so glad you asked this uh first part is that before i had done any like personal development work or really understood like my triggers it came from insecurity okay. right it came from my core wound being, I'm not good enough. People leave me and I'm going to prove everybody wrong, right? That's that's where it came from most of my life. I'd say up until ooh, probably when I was discharged from the Marine Corps. Okay. And then I went through this period of like dark, dark depression. I was in the hospital for PTSD like three times. Um, I really, really struggled like finding meaning, finding value, finding worth, like all of those things because the structured organization that I was used to um, – basically crumbled away and was taken away from me. And uh, it was in those moments that I realized is that I never had motivation. I always chose to be motivated. And once you remove the, the not good enough conversation and like the insecurity, what you're left with is like this really sense of like calm and self of like, I really am in control of what happens in my life and I can choose to do nothing or I can choose to do everything or I can find a happy median. And it took me a little while, probably a year, once I started realizing that I was doing everything to prove people wrong mm -hmm. and realizing that that wasn't healthy and it was getting me leaving empty and unfulfilled because the truth is like I was a 22-week New York Times bestseller. I still have not celebrated that fact. Like it, <laughs> meant, it meant nothing to me. It meant absolutely nothing to me because as soon as it happened, I wanted the next best thing or I wanted it to be 200 weeks or 400 weeks, right? Like it was never good enough. And so I was robbing myself of joy and excitement. And also I was robbing the people around me of the ability to connect and relate with me because I never celebrated anything. And so now I will tell you that uh, I'm not motivated. I choose motivation every day. I literally wake up not wanting to do anything. And I look at my feet on the ground. I look at my phone which is a picture of my wife and my son and my daughter. And I'm like, listen, like today I get to make a difference. Like I can change the course of their life, the course of millions of people's lives online. Like I can be the difference today and not have it be about me. So am I going to do it or no? And I get up and I pick one thing and I go do it. And like, there's days I struggle. Like I'm actually a little teary eyed right now. Um, there's days that I struggle and, uh, I don't think enough people talk about it, right? Like <laughs> motivation isn't something that you find. Mm -hmm. It's something that you create. Sure. And you have to look at what you're up to. Like no matter what, we all have a choice. And so life is just a series of choices and you just continue to choose them and choose them and choose them. And so talk about like small moves, like small choices every single day. Mm -hmm. And what typically happens is like, you're like my third phone call of the day. As soon as I get off this thing, I'm like driven, right? Like I'm like, oh my God, I've put so much out into the world today. Like I'm ready to keep going. I'm going to keep crushing. Like I'm going to keep going. Mm -hmm. But it's only because I showed up and I gave myself the tools to build that momentum. Sure. And 
as much as I want to be like, yeah, like you can go read this book or you can get this coaching session or you can like <laughs> take this supplement and you'll be motivated. Uh, the truth is, it doesn't is that, work like that. It doesn't work like that. And you really need to get connected to your why you need to figure out like at the end of the day, what is it that will keep you going? No matter how many times you get kicked in the gut, punched in the face or told no, like, what is it that you are up to and committed to? And for me, uh, it's to leave this planet better than I found it and create a legacy for my son. Let's stand on that spot for a second. For for with regards to trying to figure out what your why is. People talk about that term all the time, but there's not too many people that actually delve into the details of how to go about figuring that out. For for you talk about for you, but then also for people that are listening, like what exercise or what process would you suggest people do, or at least the first couple of steps to start doing to kind of try and figure that out. Because there's the obvious answers like, oh, well, you know, I, I do, I'm doing it for my kids. My, yeah. my answer to that is, well, of course. It's like, yeah. well, I'm, I'm doing it so that I can get a better promotion at work. It's like, the answer to that is, well, of course. I mean, the, these are, you know, these aren't unique. These aren't particularly special or interesting as relates to just you, like yeah. your, yours seems to be a lot more specific. How can people go about figuring that out? Yeah. And I love did, that. And how did you? Yeah, no, for sure. I love that question. Uh, I figured mine out out of necessity. Like I figured mine out in the deepest, darkest places on this planet, right? When I wanted to commit suicide, mm -hmm. something stopped me every time, every single time. And here's how I'm going to, I'm going to frame this for everybody. I didn't have a son at the time. <laughs> okay. I didn't. I had a wife and I wanted a family and I didn't have one at the time though. So I saw it as there was nothing to lose. And um, just the thought of possibly bringing a human being into this planet scared the ever living life out of me. And there was something about it that was really like invigorating. And it comes out of pure, it came out of pure pain for me. It came out of knowing that the way that I brought up wasn't right, right? Like it wasn't, it wasn't ideal and that it happened for a reason. And that reason might be bigger than me or it might, it might not be. But for me, I saw it as it was a way of me seeing that I could do better in this world. And I literally had like a moral obligation to use what I've been through to help other people. Like that's, that's literally how I saw it. And so I saw it externally, but then I saw it internally where like, I want to break the mold. I want to break the pattern. I want to raise a child and show him what like unconditional love is and like what support is. And so like he can go and like my impact goes from being me to being many where it's not about me to where like paradigms can shift and visions can shift and momentum can shift, which starts with one person, but how it ripples out is what really makes a big difference. And so when I look back on it, there were a lot of times I wanted to commit suicide. There was a lot of times I wanted to quit writing a book. I wanted to quit working out. I wanted to quit um, everything, right? Just like mm -hmm. every human being is faced with adversity. Sure. But for everybody that doesn't quit, if you take a step back, there's always one thing that you tell yourself that makes you keep going. That's your why. And it can happen every day. It can happen every month or it can shift. But whatever it is in that moment that makes you say, hey, today, I'm still going to shower. I'm still going to get dressed. I'm still going to go to work. I'm still going to eat healthy. I'm still going to go to the gym. 
whatever it is in that moment is your why. Now, it might only be the surface. It might be page one of a 150-page book, right? But that is your why. And you're going to start to uncover when you become aware of it and you focus on it, what the meaning of that really, really is. And so it's taken me years, years to realize that mine is that I feel indebted and that I've done a lot of work to look at my life and see it as a positive. And now that I've reframed it, I get to use that as a possibility for other people. And so that's where my why comes from. And so right now it's connected to my son. And so when I know my why, the how always figures itself out always because it's grounded, it's rooted in the right thing. And the truth is, is that like when somebody in your life that you care about more than yourself is faced with the challenge or faced with the circumstance or they need you, you will be and do whatever it takes to make that happen, no matter how insurmountable it feels. And so that's kind of where my son comes into the picture right now because I'm tired. I'm on the road all the time. Like, and at the same time, I'm literally serving billions of people. And so it's a conversation of ego versus self, right? There's this term in, in, uh, in Buddhism called Bodhisattva. Mm-hmm. And basically it's that who chooses to pass on Nirvana to better serve human beings. And so it's giving up enlightenment and pure joy in Nirvana to stay in the mud and use who you are, your journey and your stories to empower and inspire other people to take action. And it's something that's really powerful for me. Like the thought of somebody or something or anybody choosing to give up like pure 100% enlightenment and joy for their betterment of human being is like the ultimate definition of not having an ego, which is something that I'm chasing. Sure. And so that's, that's kind of why. So for everybody listening, that's not the book answer. You're not going to read that anywhere. Let me just tell you that right sure, now. Not one book, one seminar that's going to give that to you. Um, just like there wasn't any that gave it to me, it was really, really being connected to why I felt the way that I felt, why I was experiencing the things that I did, but most importantly, why I never gave up. And I've uncovered different levels of that onion, right? And so we are all onions and there are hundreds and hundreds of layers. And as soon as we peel back another one, we realize there's another one and it might make us cry. And then we got to go through it anyways. Um, but it's just to kind of keep being an exploration of self and keep being an exploration of beliefs and feelings and emotions, right? Because as a kid, we're only born with two fears. We're not born with like jealousy and rage and anger and all of those things. Those are learned behaviors. Sure, we don't care about those initially. No, we can unlearn them and we can get connected to self and we can use that to really do better in our lives, in the world, in everything that we're doing. And so I just want to, I want to like, I want to do something with what I've had and I want to show people that no matter what happens, that you can be resilient, you can be whoever you want to be, regardless of the deck of cards that was dealt to you or however the odds are stacked against you, right? Like that's how this world changes. And so that's that's how I would recommend people find their why. Okay. Just in case you guys were wondering. <laughs> well, um, George, I don't really see being able to hit too many higher notes than than in this conversation than that. Um I really think that that's actually a really great place to wrap up. That's fantastic. Um the I had mentioned a little bit earlier about just sort of the one question that I sort of uniformly ask everybody and it's it sounds like this um, this is something that could definitely apply not just y- your work but also with your family as well. Um what purchase um 
have you made in recent memory that would be a hundred dollars or less and feel free to kind of play with that number a little bit. Um, that's probably had the most dramatic impact on your life or your family's life. Like it could be some, you know, it's something small. It could be something with your business that freed you up to spend more time with your kid. It could be whatever it is, whether it's God forbid a book that happened to change your perspective, which it sounds like we already hit that note with the paleo solution a little while ago. That seems to have uh, done its done its uh, its value of what probably fifteen dollars or whatever you paid for it. I think it's earned its. Yeah. I think that's earned its keep. Yeah. Um, besides that, like what 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 can you think of that's that's helped you guys out the most and why? Yeah, that's God. That's a really good question. I, I'm pretty good. I do hundreds of interviews. This is the one that's actually making me think. That's a really good question. Um, you know what? I will say um, it's not a one-time charge. It's a, it, it's a recurring one. And it's my assistant that actually lives with us. Okay. Uh, because one of the rules is that they hold me accountable to stop. And by stop, I mean the phone goes off, the computer goes off, no matter what's left to be done. Like go and pick up, like stop, shut up and go pick up your kid. Yeah. Like literally go hold my son, kiss my wife, get off your phone and really like spend time. And so from a priority standpoint, what that's done for me is it actually inspired me to get a second phone with a work number that now goes off at the end of the night and inspired me to make rules that no matter what, I go to bed at the same time as my wife, like three nights a week. Um, no matter who's here, what's going on, I watch my son in the morning before the nanny comes or my wife goes anywhere. So what it's done is it's created multiple connective possibilities that I would have otherwise avoided and not had those experiences and those moments of like what I'm really seeking. And so, uh, for everybody wondering, basically it's accountability. I've paid for accountability that has had the biggest impact on my life. And whether that's uh, doing a mastermind or getting a mentor or having an accountability buddy or a tool that reminds you to turn off your phone or uh, one of my buddies owns a company called Pavlock. Panda. Okay. It's a shock bracelet for humans. Oh, I've seen that. I haven't seen that in a while, but I've seen that before. That's hilarious. Talk and I used to use it all the time. And it was crazy how well it worked because my reptilian brain would then be basically be programmed. And I started getting up at 4 a.m. without an alarm clock. And then I would remember not to do certain things or to do certain things. And uh, basically what it, <laughs> what it did, like, let's say I was biting my nails. Every time I bit my nail, I would have to shock myself. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And the shock doesn't feel good. Like it hurts. Um, but sure enough, within like three days, I didn't even want to think about biting my nails anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I have, I have that same nasty habit that I've yeah. almost, and I, like, I was biting almost recently kicked. I was biting him on this call and I go through phases now. Right. So what I will say is that, um, to, to answer that question in kind of like an eloquent way is that I've learned as a human being um, that I will never be greater than myself. Mm-hmm. And I am also my own worst enemy because all I see is as far as I can see where other people can see my blind spots, my possibilities and what's possible. So I've been trying to use accountability wherever possible, asking for feedback, asking for support to allow me to reach new levels of life that I otherwise would not have known possible. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, George, that I really appreciate it. Tell me, um, tell me and tell the audience where they can sort of track you down on the web if they want to follow up with you. We didn't even really get to get too much of a chance to get into your civilized caveman website at all, because I think we were talking about some pretty 
pretty amazing stuff already. Uh, but t- tell some people where that they can where they can find you on the web if they want to follow up or follow what you're doing or whatever it might be. Yeah, I love it. And uh, it's perfect because now there's context to understand why that stuff is on the web. Got it. So uh, my website is civilizedcaveman.com and it's getting a facelift right now. Actually, by the time someone hears this, it might be pretty and facelifted already. And then the other best place to find me is on Facebook because I go live all the time and I talk about things like this. I do cooking demos, recipes, mindset, fitness, food, wellness. And my Facebook page is facebook.com slash civilizedcaveman. And so those are literally the two best places to find me. Got it. All right. That sounds great. Well, George, this this has been an incredible interview. I really appreciate your time. And uh, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And uh, keep up the great work. Yeah, man. Hey, everybody. This is Jason again. I really hope that you guys enjoyed that interview. I had a blast with it. George was an incredible person to talk to for the time that I got to talk with him. Um, go ahead and Follow him on Facebook and Twitter. Just search Civilized Caveman in either of those mediums. I really think that you guys will get a lot out of it. I know I have too ever since I first came across him a while back. George has got one hell of a perspective on life. Much more of a perspective and much more of a caution perspective from what I usually see in most people. uh, Because obviously, as you just heard, he's been through a few things. um, And he has come out on the other side better than anyone could possibly imagine even while still dealing with some of the stuff that came with all with that past he's still dealing with that stuff today and honestly i can't imagine anybody handling situations like that better than george has i'm really an admirer of him i really respect him a lot i hope you guys enjoyed this conversation so just real quick uh, before you take off if you wouldn't mind logging on to the website smallmoves.co and going to the show notes page for this episode and just leaving me a comment let me know what you think about the conversation with george and uh, if you know of anybody that you think has a similar story or an interesting story that would be great to have on the podcast please leave a comment on the website i I read every comment for the website i look at i'll look forward to hearing about some of those people Um, And then also, if you would follow me on Twitter, that would be great. You can find me at twitter.com forward slash Jason Hertzberger. You can find the wonderful spelling of that name on the website. That said, I don't want to hold you too much longer. So I really appreciate it. I really hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And I will talk to you next week. You've got this.